Hey, this is Jim Fleming, and this is the Stuart Heights Fleming Sunday School Class Podcast. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday School Class, as well as a few other teaching opportunities I get at my church. But before you listen further, you may want to go to teachings.jim314.com and download the student and or teacher handouts so you can follow along visually and take some notes. Thanks for listening. Come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now let's get to this week's lesson. Good morning, everybody. That was better. Excellent. Breakfast is so good. That's there you go. Breakfast is so good. That's the issue, right, Ms. Carey? Excellent. All right. Let's start this morning with our scripture memory passage review. Uh, we've got Romans 6, 11, 12, 13, and or 14. How about just 14? How about just 14? Just 14 works. Just 14. Just 14. Really? That's funny. That's funny. You, you, they're not no standing up today? You're just going to like... Well, I have to say that I You cheated? Oh, that's not cheating. That's, that's refreshing what that is. All right, so I got three. Anybody else? Anybody else? No? All right, Ms. Cheska, you're up first. So. Yeah? Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, yes. but alive to God yes. and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's right. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. Yes. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Yes. Yes. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Yes. Excellent. Good. For sin shall have no dominion over you. This is good. For you are... For you are under... You are not under law. There you go. Good, good. Awesome. Excellent. Very good. Wonderful job. Wonderful job. I was going to say, don't, don't miss the greatest part of the whole thing. <laughs> it's like, we're not carrying all that stuff around. If you're reading through the Bible with us, and we're in the middle of numbers right now, and you want to do that, <clears throat> no. Something's sick in the head. So. All right, I'm saying. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Yes. For you are not under law, but under grace. Absolutely. That's right. Ms. Darla? Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Amen to that. Awesome. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. So, anybody else? You got it? Yeah. All right, let's jump right in. So, today's uh, lesson, uh, if you look at the list of items in the Ordo Salutis there, in the Order of Salvation, you will not see baptism in and filling with the Holy Spirit in that list. And, and it is not historically something that is taught. If you, if you are in the habit of reading systematic theology textbooks, which I am not, and I don't really know anybody that is, uh, but Grudem says, if you're in the habit of reading systematic theology textbooks, this is generally not a chapter in a systematic te- uh, textbook at this location in the book. You generally wouldn't talk about this in salvation other than the fact that the rise of the Pentecostal movement across the entire globe almost necessitates that we deal with answering this question, is baptism in and filling with the Holy Spirit a step after conversion that a believer would need to experience in order to be fully saved. So that's really the the approach that Grudem is taking today in including this. So when you look at the 
common grace and election and calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, and glorification, and you do not see baptism in the Holy Spirit, that is why. Grudem is tipping his hand here to what he believes by excluding it from the list of actual items. So let's look at a couple things. Uh, A is the traditional Pentecostal understanding. I don't think I've ever gotten to say those words in Sunday school before, so I'm kind of excited about that. I feel like I should throw up my hand and say amen or something. So two comments before we begin to deconstruct this. So um, we never shy away from truth, ever. If the Bible says it, it is right and it is good, and we will never shy away from that. If we understand it, fantastic. If we don't understand it, we have the Holy Spirit to pray for understanding, to pray for illumination, and that is okay. And in some parts of the Bible, I know this is going to shock you, right? But some parts of the Bible are difficult to understand. And that does not give us license or liberty to be lazy in any way, shape, or form. It's not what we're called to do. So if it's tough, it's tough. That's the way it is. So these numbers here that you have in your notes are the traditional Pentecostal understanding of Uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit. And this is a very specific phrase that we'll look at. Now, there's an assumption that is made in point number one that I personally agree with. And you may agree, you may disagree. I'm I'm not sure that matters a lot to the argument, but the assumption in number one is that before we get to the book of Acts, that the disciples themselves are actually believers. So at some point, either in the Passion Week or at the cross or after the cross in that period, they become true believers in Jesus Christ. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that there are periods where you look at it and you go, I don't, I don't think they believe who he says he is. I, I think they're still kind of figuring this thing out. Yeah, exactly. They are a microcosm of us coming to Christ because we get to see them clueless, utterly out of their, out of, out of their context. And then we get to see Jesus Christ being Jesus Christ, and then we get to see belief. So we see that whole process with them. So when they say they were disciples before John 20, 22, and that's when Jesus breathes on them, we think that to be true. So then we go over to Acts chapter 1, and this is where Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem because something is going to happen. He tells them to stay in Jerusalem because Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is going to happen. So let's look at this, Acts 2, 1 through 4. Four. You have it? Awesome. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Excellent. So, so we have this experience that happens after their conversion in Jerusalem. And, and what happens after this experience is unbelievable. This is the equivalent of plugging an, a device into an electrical outlet, and now it can do what it was designed to do. It can function fully. It can experience all of the things that it was supposed to experience, whereas before really didn't have this kind of a, a view of things. So, so we get to this, there's conversion, and then there's this giving of the Holy Spirit. So, so the next logical step in the traditional Pentecostal understanding is number four there. Christians today, like the apostles, should ask Jesus for a baptism in the Holy Spirit and thus follow the pattern of the disciples' lives. 
And then support for this pattern, uh, the, the, a Pentecostal understanding would look at Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. And we'll look at each one of those uh, in a couple of points. So, so the question is, is that a right view or is that not a right view? And that's what we're going to look at answering today. So in true Grudem form, uh, sticking with the concept of what systematic theology is, what does the whole Bible say about a given topic, he asked the question in point B, what does baptism in the Holy Spirit mean in the New Testament? All right, let's answer that question. So the next blank, there are only seven passages in the New Testament where we read of someone being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Only seven. Okay? So, here's what I'd like you to do. I need somebody to look up Matthew 3.11, somebody to look up Mark 1.8, somebody to look up Luke 3.16, and somebody to look up John 1.33. Okay? So who's got Matthew? Got Matthew. Who's got Mark? Mark. Who's got Luke? Luke. Who's got John? Tim, John 1.33? Excellent. We're going to read these boom, 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 all in a row. So who's got Matthew 3.11? Excellent. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. The someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Excellent. So what understanding do we get from that about baptism in the Holy Spirit? What is it? We don't know. Mark 1.8. Who's got it? I'm setting us up here to, to not answer a question that I'm trying to answer, all right? I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Excellent. So do we have more definition here on what baptism in the Holy Spirit is? Nope. It's just, it's, it's, it's going to happen at some point, right? So Luke 3.16, I felt like Luke was, I lost Luke. Where's Luke? Darla, excellent. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Yes. And if this feels repetitive, it's because it feels repetitive, right? This is the same thing being told four different ways. This is what the Gospels are. And then John one thirty three. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Excellent. So the first four mentions of this concept of baptism in the Holy Spirit, we get no insight as to what it actually is. All we get is a... So... What is this? Quit teasing me with this. Give me some details about what's going on. So let's keep going. So the next one is Acts 1.5. So Acts 1.5, you got it? Yep. Where John truly baptized with water... But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Awesome. So again, this is kind of a, a summation of the first four saying it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then in Acts 11, 16, we got 11, 16. I'm wandering in the wilderness. And I remember Just, the go. word of the Lord. And he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Excellent. So let so you, have, you may have heard in your life a principle of Bible study that says when something is repeated, let's pay attention. So we have made reference to either historically or watched it kind of live in the Gospels six times, John the Baptist saying, this baptism in the Holy Spirit is going to come. Okay. So there's only a, one other verse in the New Testament that talks about baptism in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So let's take a look. So, hang on, just before we get there, I'm going to do 
12 and 13 because 12 gives the context for it for 13 coming up. So, For as many as the body in one, as many members, and for all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. So how many bodies are we talking about? One. one body, right? So we're one body. Excellent. Great. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Excellent. So what, what is the theological word that I spend an entire week teaching you? No pressure here. That's on the front side of your handout in that list that talks about being part of a body of believers. Membership in God's family, that is what? Adoption, that is adoption. So this verse that talks about baptism in the Holy Spirit, the question is, is this baptism in the Holy Spirit or is it not? Because if this is baptism in the Holy Spirit, then it happens at when? At the moment of salvation, at conversion, or at adoption. All those things all kind of tied up together. So do you think that a, Pente- a traditional Pentecostal understanding of baptism in the Holy Spirit would say that this is baptism in the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely not. They would say this is not baptism in the Holy Spirit. And, and one of the things that is pointed to as evidence of this is the wide variety of translations in English that really kind of allow for a wide interpretation on this particular verse. And you may, be, you may have been reading your translation, and you read it and you went, well, it didn't quite sound like baptism in the Holy Spirit to my translation. There's a reason for that. And, and, and I want to make sure that I am very careful about what I say next. Every English translation has a bias. Every single one. They have a theological bias towards some set of theology. Some have extraordinarily conservative and right and true to the original text's bias. And some have, wow, that wasn't even close. Like, like not even, like some will leave verses out of the scripture that object to what aligns with their theology. So some of you might be thinking, well, well, which one is really? Well, there's a lot of them that are really, really good. And odds are you are carrying one that handles this in a great way. So I do not want to make you doubt the, the trust that you can have in your copy of the Scripture. I just want everybody to understand all translators have a bias. Yes, Dave? That's why we usually put the versions of Scripture or the translations into two different groups. We actually call one group translations Right. Because paraphrase is not a word-for-word translation, but it's usually coming at it with a particular point of view. Agreed. And for most evangelical circles, that division works really well. There are, however, Bible translations that are not intended for an evangelical audience. And those are specifically really what I'm talking about that will really... I hesitate to use the word twist, but it feels like you're twisting what the original intent of the Scripture said. So I don't want to belabor this point too much, but all translations have some type of a bias. Now, your next blank. Pentecostals do not view 1 Corinthians 12, 13 as being the same thing as baptism in the Holy Spirit. So if we're, whenever we're not sure, what do we do? What do you, what do you think I do? 
Investigate, absolutely. I'm going to dig a little deeper. So read a bunch of translations, excellent. What, what's, what do you think my next step is? Consult with other people. What do other people believe on this? Do, do we have any other resources that are available to us? Wow. Have the Holy Spirit available to us, Absolutely. which is kind of cool, right? The Holy Spirit, help me understand your baptism. Sure, that sounds great. Do we have any other resources available to us that maybe we could log on the Internet and click something and examine what something maybe said in the original Greek versus what it says in the original Greek versus what it says in the original Greek versus what it says in the original Greek, original Greek, original Greek, original Greek. You put all seven of these verses next to each other, you know what it looks like? Same thing. You know why? Because it's baptism in the Holy Spirit. And you know what that means? It happens at conversion. Which means... The second experience that some of you may have heard about or have friends that talk about, it's not part of salvation. Now, here's what I love that Grudem does. Grudem does not immediately dismiss all of those experiences. He says, let's put that on hold for just a second. We're going to come back to that. Now, and he actually says, so, but how then do we understand the references to baptism in the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5 and 11.6, both of which refer to the day of Pentecost? Were these not instances where the disciples, having previously been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, now experienced a new empowering from the Holy Spirit that enabled them to minister effectively? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what it was. Here's your next blank. The day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the old covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if you, if you don't get anything else out of today's lesson, put a star next to that and circle that because that is critical to understanding the entire New Testament and specifically the book of Acts in the New Testament. So let's do a whirlwind tour of the Holy Spirit in history. <clears throat> did you see what I did there? Did you like that? Okay. I was proud of that one. Got some murmuring laughs, but that's all right. I won't say it again. All right, so the first time the Holy Spirit shows up is where? Genesis 1, 2. Yep. So let's go back to Genesis 1, 1 and read 1, 1 and 1, 2. Anybody know it just off the top of your head? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness filled. So we start off dark, which is kind of... Like, wow, that feels like maybe there's something that's going to change darkness as we get further into the book. And it does, right? And then what happens? And the Spirit of God moved, or some of your translations say hovered, right? So this is, I spent a lot of time thinking about this this week and kind of had a, a think, an aha moment yesterday of, you know, Satan wants to imitate everything God does. Everything God does. And the Spirit of God moves and hovers, and, and we see almost immediately thereafter God speaks, and what happens to the earth? I mean, it just an explosion of life comes forth, right? And when we look at the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the whole Bible, the Holy Spirit works and moves, life comes forth. Holy Spirit works and moves, life comes forth. The Holy Spirit works and moves, draws each and every one of us to Himself, and what happens? New birth. Life takes place. And what does the devil do? The devil roams, not hovers, but roams around seeking whom he can devour. You've heard this before, yes. The Spirit is looking for whom he can give life to, and the devil is looking for whom he can take life from. I thought that was pretty good. 
Yeah. It has nothing to do with today, but I thought that I, could, I had to get that out somewhere. All right. So he hovers over the waters. And then Exodus 31, 1 through 4, one of my favorite passages in all of the Scripture, which basically says, God is not just for the person on the stage. Okay? Because we like to think about, oh, this person has got so much Holy Spirit. Oh, it's just wonderful. It's empowered. This preacher, this speaker, this whatever. Oh, it's amazing. First time the Holy Spirit fills somebody in the Bible, you know who it is? It's a dude whose name is hard to pronounce. Bezalel. I love me some Bezalel. Bezalel was an artist. There's actually a Bezalel University in uh, Israel still today. That there's a head nod back to Exodus 31, 1 through 4. And you know what Bezalel's job was? To build things. He, he, he was the craftsman that took... Get this, guys. This is amazing. He was the craftsman that took gold and fashioned it into all the intricate, ornate utensils and artifacts that were going to be used in the tabernacle. For hundreds of years... God's people used Bezalel's work to rightly relate to their God. And then, later on, God used those same instruments that Bezalel created, that when Nebuchadnezzar sacked the temple and drugged those things out and used them in profane ways, God used those things to bring judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. This was a huge... Bezalel had this massive impact into the entire Old Testament because you can't sacrifice in the tabernacle or in the temple without using what Bezalel made. It doesn't work. It's critical. And the first guy that the Holy Spirit fills is an artist. Go artists. How cool is that, right? Wasn't a math guy. Wasn't an accountant. Wasn't the dude doing all the counting and numbers. Wasn't Moses. Wasn't Aaron was Bezalel. You're like, well, that's pretty cool. Bezalel was not the guy on stage. So, however, during this time, the work of the Holy Spirit in individual lives was in general a work of lesser power. It was not something that came very strong and then stayed, which is why David in Psalm 5111 could pray the prayer and he could say, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And this is a prayer, and there's gobs of these in the Old Testament, guys. This is a prayer that we do not pray today. We do not have to pray Father, take your, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. I mean, think how, think how scary that would be. I mean, this is, this is, in my mind, the greatest benefit of being a New Covenant believer is having the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's not going anywhere. For the rest of my life, he's not going anywhere. It's beautiful. And David had to pray when he wouldn't go somewhere. Um, think, about, think about spiritual attacks in the Old Testament and how many times somebody stood up and rebuked Satan or a demon in the Old Testament. Thank you for that comprehensive analysis of that. He worked through other things, but there wasn't this direct attack of demonic activity by demons themselves. It was through something else. When you get to the New Testament and the Spirit is poured out, that's when Satan goes into full offensive mode. Jesus Christ shows up, has this whole different type of uh, using the Holy Spirit and filling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and Satan goes full-on offensive press attack. And then we get indwelled with the Holy Spirit and are able to combat that in a way that is very unlike anything in the Old Testament. Go to Joel 2, 28 and 29. We don't go to Joel very often. Joel's a fun book. 
if you like judgment. <laughs> if you don't like judgment, it's not, it's not like you're, ooh, I'll read something happy today from Joel. And I think every Joel that I know is a, a reasonably nice guy. So it's, you know. Sometimes I wonder if people read the scriptures before they name their children. I met a Delilah a few years ago. It's like, there's Google, you know? I mean, we can, we can Google these things. So, all right, Joel 28, 29. I'm going to pull that out of the podcast, aren't I? Yeah, all right. If there's any Delilahs listening, Jesus loves you and desires for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit as well and uh, maybe can use this. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to stop. All right, Joel 2, 28, 29. Who's got it? You got it? Excellent. Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike. What, so if you had to pick a day in biblical history where it felt like that might have been happening, just, just at random, just pick any day, just pick a day. What do you think? Friday. <laughs> that was awesome. All right. Snarky Tim. There you go. Pentecost, right? I mean, because you look at Pentecost and you go, oh, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty clear. This is what's happening here, right? And the New Testament opens up. We see John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. We see Jesus come in. We see him filled with the Spirit and do absolutely, amazingly unbelievable things. And then all those verses from Acts 1.8... All through uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 are all different things that the Spirit enables and empowers and allows us to do. So I'll let you, if you want to do a little homework on what does the Spirit do. It's everything from Acts 1, 8 to 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and that big long list of verses. You, said, you thought we were going to go look at those, didn't you? Ain't got time for that. Ain't got time. They're not highlighted. That's right. Thank you. All right. So C then. How should we, us, we're going to put us in the, in the, in the text here. In, in the lesson here, not in the text. How should we understand the second experiences in Acts? All right, so let's look at three of them real quick. So Acts 8. Acts 8 is um, uh, the Samaritans that were not at Jerusalem, that uh, somebody went out and ministered to them and laid hands on them, and they got the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to them. And there's a lot of different reasons as to why God could have done this. Grudem proposes one. And he says that, you know, the Samaritans were not thought of very highly by the church elite back in Jerusalem because those guys were Jews. And, and when reports came back that at the hands of the apostles themselves that God treated these Samaritans the same way he treated his own people, the Jews, this would have elevated the Samaritan experience and enabled everybody to be seen as equal. So this might have been an attempt by God to make racial equality a real thing in the body of Christ, which I thought was a really neat explanation of that. So, so there's a proposed answer for Acts 8. If you flip over to Acts 10, this is all about Cornelius, this whole chapter. Um, a lot of people, when you read Acts chapter 10, Cornelius does not act like a believer. He just doesn't. Uh, Peter comes and he preaches to him, and he gets the Holy Spirit, and... Things are different at that point. And I believe it's different at that point because he got saved at that point. It wasn't that Cornelius comes into Acts 10 as a believer and then has some second experience. It was it's his first rodeo with the Holy Spirit. This is his first time up. And then you move over to Acts 19, 1 through 7. 
and this is um, the, uh, the disciples in Ephesus here. And uh, one of the things that it talks about in Acts 19.3 is that they were familiar with the baptism of John. They were familiar with the doctrine of John and his teaching. So what did John the Baptist know about? He knew that we were sinners and that we were called to repent. And he knew that the Messiah had come. But did John get to see the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ? No. So when somebody says, I know what John the Baptist taught, they only knew up to a certain point. So they could be called disciples of John the Baptist, and that would cut off their knowledge before the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't relate to a believer that was in that chronological time period because I didn't first hear about Jesus before the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Everything from my perspective and from our perspective is past tense. So the fact that they then heard the full gospel, and the full gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not something else. The full gospel, and then received the Holy Spirit means, guess what? They became believers at that point. Right? They understood the whole thing, and that's when the Holy Spirit was given. So these are typically the three uh, texts that are used to describe second experiences in the New Testament, and all three of them have reasonable explanations as to why we can't relate to them. So I can't relate to an unbeliever in Cornelius and Acts 10. I can't relate to somebody who has experienced the doctrine of John the Baptist before, during, and after the crucifixion. So then D, Grudem asked, what terms shall we use to refer to an empowering by the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion? It's a long sentence because he's trying not to give his answer away in the, height, in the heading. So, All right, so a couple things here. Words matter, so let's act like it theologically too. So if it's not baptism in the Holy Spirit, what is it? All right, so I'm going to show you something. So big props to Dave Barber for making all of this work. Uh, some of you... Uh, that have been in this class for a while knew that this little device right here was not in this room uh, in 2015. So kudos, Dave. Thank you for making that work. I uh, came in this morning, plugged my laptop in, and it worked, which is really kind of cool. And I have checked, and if you have trouble seeing this from any point in the room, you need your eyes checked. So, because I have 20-20 vision, had my eyes checked less than uh, two months ago, and if you can't see it, then the optometrist might be for you. So. So here's the problem with uh, the second experience. When, when you say, when you meet somebody that says, well, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Great. Here's the natural outcome of that. The natural outcome of that is two-class Christianity. Is that there's an ordinary Christian track and then a, a spirit-filled or a spiritual or a sanctified or a... Or a and this is Grudem's joke in his uh, footnotes on page 776. Uh, truly reformed, which is kind of funny. I, I hadn't seen him make a joke in the book yet, so that was nice. Uh, or, your, or your disciples. And then if you're Roman Catholic, there's, there's priests, and then there's this next level up, which is your saints. Right? And here's what happens when we start to subdivide Christians. It doesn't feel like one body. It feels like us versus them. It feels like I'm a little more... It, and even and Grudem goes, he goes on and on and on about all the humble Pentecostal friends that he has that do not in any way act arrogantly or pridefully, even believing this doctrine. But sure, it's got to be hard to 
to beat that down. When you, I have experienced something that you haven't, and therefore, so we then, who would not hold to a traditional Pentecostal view, need to be very, very careful of any experience or activity or knowledge that we may have as believers that someone else that is also a believer does not have so that we do not make anybody ever feel like an ordinary Christian. Now, I will tell you, there is a bright, shiny, I should have made this bright, shiny, a bright, shiny line in between Christians and non-Christians. There is nothing but darkness here. There is nothing but darkness here. There's a reason Grudem actually has that color at the bottom darker than he does at the top. So this is one of the natural outcomes when you have a two-class Christianity construct. So let's keep going. Number two, under point D, there are many degrees of empowering fellowship with God and personal Christian maturity. Can I get an amen to that? Has anybody ever experienced the fact that your Christian life feels like a jagged line and sometimes it's going up and sometimes it's going sideways and sometimes it just jumped off the page? Because, yeah. Um, and, And this is what he's talking about here, that there ought to be some type of an upward trend toward Jesus Christ, but we're never going to, Jesus is like above the line here, Um, we're never going to look like Jesus on this earth in this place. It's not going to happen. But all Christians are somewhere in here. And again, non-Christians, just darkness. That's just the way that works. It's just darkness. So let's keep going. So how do we understand the contemporary experience then? So we, we still really hadn't answered that question. So Grudem spends a lot of time hanging out with Pentecostals, which I think is kind of cool. So I'll give you his view of what is typically taught uh, about the need to prepare for baptism in the Holy Spirit. So this is what a, a, a traditional Pentecostal church member would be taught about how to get ready for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Very often people will be taught that they should confess all known sins, repent of any remaining sin in their lives, trust Christ to forgive those sins, commit every area of their lives to the Lord's service, yield themselves fully to Him, and believe that Christ is going to empower them in a new way and equip them with new gifts for ministry. What does that sound like? Say it again, darling. Sounds like getting saved. Or, if you already were saved, what does that sound like? (laughs) Still sounds like getting saved, doesn't it? Yeah, I would, I would almost say it almost sounds like getting right with God. I'm going to confess everything and say, make me new and clean and, you know, just, okay. What's going to happen when you ask God to forgive sins and deal with you? He's going to do it. This is where my voice gets really high-pitched because, of course, he's going to do it. This is what he does. It's wonderful. You are going to look more like Jesus the more often you do this. And it would be very natural for somebody to pick an example out of Scripture that feels and looks a little bit like what I just experienced, give it a name, and say everybody ought to have that. Because that's what Christians do. We love to say, I'm special. I've got something. I'll be honest. I love knowing something that nobody else knows. Right? Julie will tell you, when we watch movies together, what do I do? When we're at home. You have no idea? Okay. So am I typically on any device? Yeah, all right. There it went. Okay. I'm looking at Internet Movie Database, and I'm looking at the trivia. Because I want to know everything there is to know about behind the scenes and all the little facts and what's going on. Because I like to know that. And then at the perfect time, I'm going to say, hey, Jules, do you know this? (laughs) Is it a whole movie? 
<laughs> Thank you. I was like, I'm teeing it up for you. You just got to swing, right? Okay. All right. Good, good, good. So, so the next question is, so what terms should we use? And, and C there is what is being filled with the Spirit? What is being filled with the Spirit? So I'm going to tell you... Um, I'm going to read Grudem's point here. Did anybody notice that you've got something different on your tables today? Yeah. What have you got on your table? Got a balloon. What do you think we're fixing to do with the balloons? Whatever you want to do with the balloons. This is a good example. All right. So someone might... Here's Grudem. Someone might object that a person who is already full of the Holy Spirit cannot become more full. If a glass is full of water, no more water can be put into it. Would you agree with that? I mean, a glass full of water, you can't put more water into it? Yeah, unless you do something crazy with chemistry that I didn't pay attention to. Okay, all right. But a water glass is a poor analogy for us as real people. God is able to cause us to grow and to be able to contain much more of the Holy Spirit's fullness and power. A better analogy might be a balloon. That's your blank. Which can be full of air even though it has very little air in it. And when more air is blown in, the balloon expands and is in a sense more full. My head just blew up like four weeks ago when I read this. So it is with us. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit and at the same time be able to re- receive much more of the Holy Spirit as well. Isn't that beautiful? It's like God created us in a way that could contain more of Him? This is where my head explodes like a balloon, right? You say, explain that, Jim. I think I just did. That's all I got. <laughs> It's amazing. It's absolutely, absolutely amazing. So is there anything wrong with saying, God, fill me with more of the Holy Spirit? No. If you listen, thank you, if you listen to the prayers that are prayed on stage right before the preacher gets up, a lot of times that's actually what's being prayed. Fill him with your spirit so that his words would be your words. We actually read that in... Numbers this morning that Moses said every single thing that God told him to say. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. And then Grudem ends with number three, which I wonder if he wrote with gritted teeth because he actually does believe that speaking in tongues is for us today, and we'll deal with that in chapter 53. Uh, But being filled with the Holy Spirit does not always result in speaking in tongues. And I won't go to all those verses, but there's some verses that talk about uh, filling with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, and there's a bunch of verses that talk about Actually, much more, many more verses to talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit and not speaking in tongues. So, um, so that is an option for you as well. So let it be known. I had eight pages of notes today. And I am totally out of breath. So <laughs> thank you for the balloons, Ms. Jessica. I appreciate that. Uh, and I want you to, I want somebody at the table to take a, is it okay we take the balloons? All right, awesome. Yeah, because some of you have blown them up and you want to put them back in the bag because that's just nasty. <laughs> So somebody at the table, take a balloon, and I want that to remind you that we need the filling of the Holy Spirit, and this is a good thing. It is a great thing, but it is not a thing that happens after conversion. I'm sorry, the filling is the thing that happens after conversion. The baptism in the Holy Spirit happens at conversion. We get the Holy Spirit then. We become members of the body of Christ then but we can get more of God later, which is fantastic. It's a beautiful thing. I, I don't know that I'll ever understand it. Yes? But you just said, kind of confirmed something in my head. I grew up Catholic. Yes. And I got saved at 18. Yes. Before anybody else in my family. Oh, wow. And um, so 
I was angry at Catholics for a long time for not telling me the truth, but then God put in my life um, some awesome Christians that were uh, Catholics that were on fire for God, yeah. and they're the ones who taught me about what baptism and the Holy Spirit meant. They were, yeah. and what they, but they used the balloon analogy. Yeah, they really? Awesome. These Catholics. So I just used a Catholic example? Yeah. That is wicked awesome. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever done that one before. Awesome. <laughs> Check one off the bucket list there. Cool. All right, so the alternate hymn at the bottom of your handout is Spirit of the Living God. And I love this. Spirit of the Living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, and use me. Spirit of the Living God, fall afresh on me. So let that be your closing prayer today. Um, But if you would, there's a weekly update at the middle of your table. Make sure your prayer requests are on that. So at your tables, lean in, share your prayer requests, pray, and then uh, you are dismissed. So thanks for coming today, guys.